Welcome back, everybody. This is not Gary Nolan. This is Dave Rowland of the Freedom Center of Missouri filling in for Gary today. I appreciate everyone who's been listening so far. We have had a, uh, a fantastic conversation about uh, political parties, about the electoral system, about school choice and education. Um, it's been a lot of fun so far, but I am thrilled to be introducing a, a special guest for this part of the show. Uh, her name is Kim Herman. Kim is the general counsel for Southeastern Legal Foundation. And Kim and I have known each other for some time. Kim, I, I told everybody uh, before the break uh, about how we had known each other for what, about no, eight or nine years now? Is that about right? Yeah, it's been it's been quite a ride getting to work together over the years and fight for freedom and liberty. Yeah, well, I told them that you are a brilliant attorney doing fantastic work. Um, I let them know that uh, you and I worked together on one case in particular. Uh, would you like to do the honors in telling the listeners what that case was about? Yeah, sure, absolutely. And, and thanks for having me on today, Dave. Um, it's, it's a treat to get to do this with a friend. Um, but yeah, so... Back in 2019, um, a client of ours, John Solomon, who is um, an award-winning investigative journalist, um, he went ahead and sent a Sunshine Law request to Kim Gardner's office asking for any communication that uh, her office and that she had with a variety of entities all related to George Soros. Um, because what we have going on throughout our country is we have George Soros and his entities kind of funding these local prosecutor elections. Um, and he was doing a story on that. So he sent a Sunshine Law request. And, uh, of course, they refused to give us any documents. Um, he then reached out to us. We filed a lawsuit on his behalf together. And here we are three years later after taking the case all the way up to Missouri Supreme Court, and we're finally getting documents. And, um, you know, I expect him to release those documents later this week. But, man, it's been a fight just to get some transparency into these basic communications. It has been a fight. And, and so the listeners know part of the reason that this is important, um, you know, as you pointed out, George Soros has had some success in funding the campaigns of prosecuting attorneys uh, with, you know, a, a progressive outlook. And the concern that we have is when it comes to the people who are responsible for enforcing the laws, we do not want um, their decisions about which cases to pursue to be motivated by politics. That's just tremendously bad for um, our our judicial system, our system of justice as a whole. And um, one of the things that we saw is after uh, Kim Gardner decided to prosecute the McCloskeys in St. Louis, she turned around and started fundraising based on her, her decision to prosecute that case. Um, and that that just should make everybody feel kind of uncomfortable um, because it, it suggests that there might be a financial incentive um, to the choice of the cases that are going to be pursued. Um, and so that's that's one of the elements involved when um, you're asking for public records related to um calls between a prosecuting attorney and their political funders, you know, you want to find out, is it possible that there has been some undue influence in the decision-making process um, in favor of, of one prosecution over another? Um, so 
as Kim pointed out, uh, we have finally, after three years of litigation, um, started receiving some of these records. And uh, and we are hopeful that, that we're going to be able to make some of those records public later this week. We don't know just when yet, um, but, but if you keep an eye on the news, especially justthenews.com, which is Mr. Solomon's media outlet, uh, you might be able to see some breaking news on that front um, here pretty shortly. So, Kim, <laughs> have you have you ever had a case quite like this uh, this Kim Gardner case? All the twists and turns that it took, uh, it, it was pretty unusual, wasn't it? You know, Dave, I I wish I could say it was. Um, you know, in Missouri, it was. We have not had a sunshine law request that we've handled in Missouri that has taken quite this long, or where the government has protested quite as strongly as they did in this case to give us these documents. And when we're talking about these documents, just for your listeners, we're not talking about searching, you know, tens of thousands of documents on a server. It was the communications between very particular parties that we were asking for, something that any of us could go into our inbox and do a quick search and come up with the documents for. Um, but we have litigated cases against the EPA for records that have taken us over seven years to get the documents. And so, you know, the concerns about transparency and everyone, you see government officials, they run on these platforms of transparency. You're going to know what happens in the government when I get into this role, when you elect me. It's really important that we hold them accountable to that because once in office, those doors frequently shut and they don't want to give the transparency to the public. And it's really important for us to remember, these are records. Yeah, these absolutely. are public records that we're seeking. They belong to the public. They do not belong to these elected officials. Yeah. Well, I didn't mean to suggest that it was unusual for government officials to withhold records because <laughs> because of that, in, that, in fact, is very clearly a problem. And as I so frequently point out, it is not exclusive to folks on one side of the aisle. Uh, the Freedom Center is once again heading up to the Missouri Court of Appeals in our case against the Cole County prosecuting attorney, which now seven years later still has not done the search for these records that our client requested in April of 2015. Um, wow. so, so that kind of obstruction <laughs> happens all the time. What I thought was so unusual about the Gardner case is it seemed like her, her strategy was to stonewall not just our records request, but then she stonewalled the lawsuit. Um, yeah, ordinarily, yeah, when, you have a, yeah. when you have a case filed, you then go into court and you present your defenses. And she didn't do that at all. She, she ended up getting a default judgment and i'm i don't know for sure but it almost seemed like the strategy was to allow the default to happen to fight that as long as they possibly could and then when it went back down to the trial court to try and say okay now let's talk about whether we can keep these records shielded under the sunshine law so it, it, it almost seemed like this bizarre double layer strategy that she was pursuing. And fortunately, um, Judge Singheiser over in St. Louis City did not allow her to do that. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's what I thought was really unusual about that case. But fortunately, our judicial system held her to account. Um, and, and that's something that, that we can be proud of. Um, I wanted to touch on some of the other cases that you've been looking into in Missouri. Would you like to, to share with the listeners the other work that Southeastern Legal has been doing here in our state? Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. Um, 
So I'm trying to think. It was probably about a year and a half ago now. Um, we filed a lawsuit in Springfield, Missouri, on behalf of several educators there. So the Springfield Public School District required all of its educators, we're talking from the bus driver to your AP US history teacher, to take what it deemed an anti-racist training. Now in this training, the um, teachers were required to affirm ideas like colorblindness is a bad idea. Our constitution demands that um, we look at skin color, our laws require that we look at skin color and treat people differently because of the color of their skin. Now I'm paraphrasing here, but what I'm not paraphrasing is how they define anti-racism. They have said in court document after court document that to them, anti-racism is a rejection of colorblindness Mm -hmm. and that it means to exactly what I said, to look at the color of skin. So our clients said, hey, there's something wrong with this. We don't agree with this. We think you should look at the inside of a person, at somebody's heart, not at the outside. And because they were compelled to say these ideas, because they were compelled to believe them, and because their viewpoints were discriminated against, we filed a lawsuit on their behalf saying that their First Amendment rights were violated. Um, And that was about a year and a half ago now. And we have briefed that case. So we have gone through all of the steps that now have landed on the judge's desk, and we now just wait, await a ruling. And that's in Greene that. County Circuit Court? That is in federal court. Federal court, okay, that great. case in federal court over um, in, in Springfield, Missouri. Okay, great. Um, that's good. So we don't know yet when those decisions will hand down. As I, I explain to listeners every so often, one of the one of the frustrating things that attorneys deal with is once an issue has been submitted to a judge, you rarely have a clear idea of when they will render a decision. Um, sometimes you can get a decision almost immediately. On rare occasions, you may even get a, a decision announced from the bench. Um, at the end of the arguments, but frequently it can take weeks, which sometimes drag into months for courts to make decisions. And attorneys don't necessarily know when these decisions are going to be announced. And um, when there is an announcement, it triggers a timeline for the next step in the case. And sometimes, uh, much to attorneys' consternation, you end up with lots of decisions happening round about the same time in a number of different cases. And then you've got all these overlapping deadlines. And uh, it, it can be a real handful to deal with. Um, I, I hope that that doesn't end up happening with, with your case down there in Springfield. But uh, I imagine you guys are also pretty yeah. well situated to uh, act as quickly as you need to whenever that decision does come down, right? Yeah, I mean, we're ready. You know, we, ha- we have a trial date for January of 2023. So we expect the judge to rule on this case. So basically, he's going to rule and say, yes, we believe or I believe that the school district violated the First Amendment or no, I don't believe, or I don't have enough information, and Mm -hmm. now you need to go to trial. And so he has those three options. We expect to know something by the end of this year, since this case would be going to trial in January of 2023. You know, the real interesting thing about this case is that the school district came back and said, at first they said, hey, we've stopped all of this training. We stopped our quote unquote equity training, which, you know, that term is up for debate and how you define it. And what they meant was that they pulled a lot of training that they were going to be doing on um, gender 
and on LGBTQ and uh-huh. on chan- transgenderism. But they've dug in throughout this case on what they believe anti-racism is and what they believe should be in our schools and our teachers need to be affirming. And that's been the real interesting thing here. Um, because well, hey, tell you what, Kim, uh, we, are, we are coming up on a commercial break here. Yeah. Why don't we pick this up again on the other side of the commercial break? And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this case in Springfield. But also, I think you're doing some, uh, some looking at situations in Webster Groves, too. Isn't that right? Yeah. All right. We will get to that on the other side of this break. Keep listening. This is Dave Roland filling in for Gary Nolan on the Zimmer Radio Network. We are back. This is Dave Roland filling in for Gary Nolan on the Gary Nolan Show. We have been talking with Kim Herman, who is the general counsel for Southeastern Legal Foundation. Uh, That's a group similar to the Freedom Center of Missouri, my own organization, only they work on a larger scale. Um, Kim has been part of South, uh, Southeastern Legal for quite some time, haven't you, Kim? Uh, yeah, I'm going on th- over 13 years now. Oh, that's fantastic. That's great. You, you have been doing excellent work all over the country, uh, advancing the causes of free speech and property rights and economic liberty. Um, but what we've been talking about in the last segment is work that Southeastern Legal has been doing here in Missouri. Uh, we talked about the case that you and the Freedom Center teamed up on, the John Solomon versus Kim Gardner case. Um, but you've also been working on this case in Springfield that we talked about, and then it it sounded like you had another case that you wanted to talk about. Why don't you fill the listeners in on that? Yeah, absolutely. So this isn't a lawsuit, but this is, um, it is a legal action. And, you know, what we were talking about in Springfield is teachers taking action and teachers standing up for their students' rights and for their own rights. But we have a lot of parents across the, the country who have really, in the last two years since COVID, woken up to what's happening in their kids' schools. And we had some parents in Webster Grove come to us who were really concerned about invasive surveys that their kids were being required to take. And when I say kids, we're talking about kindergarten all the way up through 12th grade. And some of these surveys focused on race, but a lot of them focused on mental health. So the school is requiring uh, high school students to take daily surveys, um, asking them questions about their mental health status, asking them questions that would identify their political affiliation. Um, So these surveys that kind of you take and you answer all these questions and it spits out who you should vote for and whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. Um, Questions about their family behavior and questions about their sexual identity and sexual behavior. Now, the thing is, Yes, parents are going to be concerned about these questions, but even more, it's illegal for schools to be asking kids these types of questions without parental consent. And the parents had no idea this was happening before these questions were asked. And so they came to us. And unfortunately, you can't really file lawsuits for this violation. When Congress passed these laws, they did not give parents a way to sue. But through some legal research um our great attorneys here realized that the missouri attorney general has the authority to subpoena these documents and launch his own investigation and if he believes there's a violation he can then sue the school districts and the third parties that make these surveys so we sent a letter on behalf of the parents asking him to launch an investigation like that he did and since then he's been collecting records from school districts He's been collecting records from Panorama Education and some of the other 
uh, groups that make and sell these surveys to the schools. And we're really excited that he's taking action because no one else around the country is really doing that. That's really interesting. So with the records that the attorney general uh, has been obtaining from these school districts, would those be public records that citizens could then request and review for themselves? Or are they subject to some sort of confidentiality or protection? So the records um, from the school districts should be subject to public records, but we've had many parents request these records, and whether it's in Webster Grove or in other school districts, um, the school districts want exorbitant amount of money. Uh, they refuse yeah. to give the documents over. Now, Webster Grove has given some documents over, so I absolutely don't want to be misleading here and say that Webster Grove hasn't responded to open records requests, because they have, um, but not all of them. And there's still many records that parents want and haven't been able to get. And even when the parents have it, then what do they do with it? Right. Right. They can call a news station. They can send it to the local paper. But what's that going to do other than create awareness, which is important? But we need real change. We need to see our states. if If schools, if you want these kids to take these surveys, parents shouldn't have to opt out. They should have to opt in. Right, you should always have to get parental consent to be asking your five and six year olds invasive questions about their gender and sexual questions. They shouldn't be asking those of kids in the first place if you ask me, but at least get parental consent to do it if you're gonna insist on it. Agreed. Yeah. Now with respect to the third parties, parents can't get those records. Only the attorney general can get those records. Well, do you know if parents can get them from the attorney general's office? So right now it's an active investigation. We haven't even seen the records. We're we're aware of the fact that he has submitted these um, subpoenas to these parties and um, there has not been a public update on it, but we are hopeful that they are collecting these records and that they are working through them um, and that when they see the violations that we know exist, they will hold these entities accountable. I see. I see. So the Freedom Center a couple of years ago put together a parental rights amendment proposal that it's been tossed around the Missouri legislature a couple of times. It hasn't really gotten much traction, but but it actually would safeguard parents' rights to know when any public entity is um, questioning their children. Um, and I, I was just curious, has Southeastern Legal put together anything to kind of give parents a guide for how to deal with situations like this? Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you asked. Um, legislation like that is important, but parents also have to understand their rights, and that's where it all starts. And we actually put out a parent guidebook earlier this year that can be found on our website, slfliberty.org. It's a 12-page guide that breaks down the law. The law is really confusing, and it can be really overwhelming even to attorneys, let alone to parents who don't live in this day in and day out. And so we really just want to give parents the basic tools that they can go to their school and they can use the right terminology and assert their rights in a productive way, right? This is all about civil discourse. This is all about working with your school to get answers and to effectuate the change that your community wants to see in your schools. Um, And so our guidebook is really aimed at giving them the tools to do that in a productive and efficient manner. Fantastic, Kim. Again, for for anyone who who needs the, the web address to find that, could you repeat the web address where they would find that? Absolutely. It's slfliberty.org. 
Fantastic. Kim Herman, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. I love talking to you. I understand you've got something else you've got to get to now, so we're not going to be able to pick you up on the other side of the break. But uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks, Dave. Sure, not a problem. We are going into a commercial break. We still got a half hour left in the show today. I hope you'll stick around. If you've got questions or comments, 1-800-529-5572 or 573-874-9390. Call in. Let's talk about your thoughts here with Dave Rowland on the this Zimmer the Radio Gary Network. Nolan show. We are back. This is Dave Rowland filling in for Gary Nolan on the Gary Nolan Show. Uh, boy, it has been a fun show today. We've talked a little bit about uh, my decision to be a conscientious objector from electoral politics. We've talked about George Washington's perspective on the uh, problems with political parties and how that informed my decision. Uh, we've also talked a little bit about education funding and school choice. Uh, and then in the last segment, we had my friend Kim Herman on to talk about the work that Southeastern Legal Foundation has been doing here in the state of Missouri. Um, so it's been a lot of fun for me. I wanted to take this last um, last half hour or so to update listeners a little bit on the work that my organization, the Freedom Center of Missouri, is doing here in the state. Um, listeners will maybe remember that the Freedom Center is a utterly nonpartisan, nonprofit uh, public interest litigation center. And that means that we bring cases on behalf of people who don't have to pay us to represent them. That's called pro bono. It means that you receive the benefits of legal representation without having to pay out of your own pocket. Um, and we take on a lot of really important issues. We take on constitutional issues like free speech, religious liberty, economic liberty, property rights, uh, the right to keep and bear arms. And we also take on transparency issues, which Although maybe they should be part of the Constitution, they're not. They're a statutory issue in the state of Missouri. Um, I want to talk about a few of the cases that we've been working on. Uh, the most important one that we've got to talk about right now is our Good Samaritan case. Gary likes to talk about this case a lot when I'm on, um, on Thursdays. But uh, essentially in 2018... A pastor, Ray Redlick, and his assistant in St. Louis City uh, got cited because they were handing out food to the homeless. Um, the food that they were handing out happened to be bologna sandwiches. Now, I think quite importantly, the sandwiches they were handing out were prepared in churches, uh, church facilities that were certified by their local health officials. So in other words, um, you know, it's, it's the same thing essentially as getting the food from a restaurant or a grocery store. It's been prepared by people that got the government stamp of approval. Um, and yet the city says you are not allowed to hand out this food unless you first jump through all of these bureaucratic hoops, including uh, paying some pretty substantial fees in order to be able to do so. Um, effectively, complying with the government's requirements is cost prohibitive. Uh, it, it really, you know, there's just no way that this pastor and his assistant could afford to continue their ministry to the homeless um, if they had to jump through all of these bureaucratic hoops. So we filed this lawsuit and we fought it for years at the district court level. Um, ultimately, the district court ruled against us and said the city gets to enforce its um, gets to enforce its ordinance this way. Uh, we appealed that up to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, and just last. 
last week, the Eighth Circuit said, uh, we agree with the district court. We think that the city can continue to enforce this ordinance. Now, there's a really weird thing about how they did this. And ironically, um, it, it kind of makes it a partial win for us, but it also may be a barrier for us. They said, well, look, you could provide some kinds of food, like, for example, peanut butter sandwiches. Um, so you're only prohibited from sharing certain kinds of food. You are allowed to share others. Now, we had pointed out that there's actually a specific part of the city's ordinance that says the opposite. There's a specific part of the city's ordinance that says if you are distributing food from a vehicle, you still have to get the city's permits, even if the food that you're sharing is, quote unquote, non-hazardous. And we said, well, you know, court, we don't know how you can reconcile, um, you know, this idea that you're allowed to share, quote unquote, non-hazardous food, uh, even though there's an ordinance directly against it. The Eighth Circuit found a way to reconcile that. Now, I don't think that the logic actually holds up, but what it amounts to is a ruling that says that our clients can continue to provide certain kinds of food to the homeless um, and they can do so without the city's permission. This case is not over. Um, we are going to raise a couple of issues that we feel like the three-judge panel of the Eighth Circuit overlooked in handing down, down this decision. Um, we're going to ask them to reconsider it. If they do, then maybe we'll get a better decision on the other side of it. Um, and if they do not agree to reconsider it, then we're considering the possibility of taking this up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and we'll just have to see how that goes. But the long and the short of it is, is we're fighting for all Missourians' religious liberty, especially when that liberty involves uh, fulfilling a religious obligation to provide food to the hungry. We think that that's an ideal worth fighting for, and we've been out there on the front lines of this fight uh, for years now. Uh, I have a question for you. Yeah, sure. What you is uh, St. Louis, the city of St. Louis, arguing because the food is prepared by the ministry? Is that what their objection is, or is it just because that? the ministry is supplying food instead of going to the government to get these services. Could the ministry go to and get pack, prepackaged food and say, here? Would well, that's what the city is saying now. Um, so the ordinance, I think, says differently. The city is saying now that if you went and got prepackaged food from a restaurant or a grocery store, you could provide it. But, of course, we pointed out, well, that's effectively what they're doing. They're getting this food from the, and it's it's been prepared at these facilities. It's, it's put into plastic bags by the facilities. But the food was taken out and repackaged? No. Okay. No. Uh, the food's picked up at the churches that are that are donating it. It's taken to the refrigerators at uh, at a central location and then put into coolers and taken out to the homeless. So they're saying because you you are giving it to uh, the uh, homeless. Again, if they want to, like, you know, uh, a restaurant to get that food, it would be fine. See, this is what's unclear, Brian. Like, we pointed out right. that the food is prepared at a certified facility. Yeah, and I'm confused now. And, <laughs> and we said that effectively it should be treated the same as getting right. it from a restaurant or a grocery store. The court never addressed that issue. Hmm. 
it never addressed that issue. It acted as though the issue was people preparing food themselves at home right. and then providing but it. But that's not what this is. And by the way, the law, apparently, according to the city, allows people to share food at a picnic held in public, at a tailgate party held in public. It allows them to share, quote unquote, hazardous foods <laughs> as long as you're not homeless. Now, again, we pointed this out to the court. And they didn't address they it. They didn't address it. Wow. And so that's what we're going to ask them to reconsider. We're going to point these things out again and say, you know, these are actually quite important points that you should address. Um, but again, and this is something that we run into as litigators sometimes. We believe we have made the, the arguments that should win the case for us. And one of the most frustrating things that can happen is sometimes the courts just gloss over or ignore the points mm -hmm. that we think That's should result in the, the victory. Um, and I don't want to say that that happens all the time, but it does happen with some frequency. Um, and so I am hopeful that the court is going to look at this and say, oh, you know what? Yeah, that is actually pretty important and at least address it. Like it's, it's one thing if they acknowledge the argument and then disagree, right? You know, that at least, you know, you've been heard, you know, that they have articulated a reason for disagreeing with you, but when they just don't mention it at all, that's really, really frustrating because you can't really take that up on a peak. Right. You yeah. can't take that up to the next level if it's not addressed, or at least it's very difficult. It's almost as if they want the homeless to depend on the government. Oh, I, I would not go quite that far. But it sure seems like it. It does. You know, I can't um, imagine any other reason because I mean, if like I brought city you, definitely wants that. If I brought you a plate of food for you know watching the Tennessee game, for if I was your neighbor, yeah. What would be or, wrong or with that? Or if you're having a backyard yeah, barbecue or a, back or a block picnic, party, they um, they wouldn't care. They couldn't care less. Exactly. But because you're giving it to a group of people that can't afford to eat on their own, oh, no, right. you can't do this. Well, here's here's one other thing, and part of the frustration with this is that the city kept changing its position throughout the litigation. They kept changing their argument. So one of the things that they initially said was that this ordinance prohibits sharing food even if you're on private property. And so in, in 2012, there was a Christian ministry that was providing food to the homeless on private property in private buildings down on the waterfront in St. Louis City, and the city busted them for it and wow. said, you can't do that, even though you're on private property. And so we pointed out to the court, hey, look, this ordinance is incredibly broad. They have applied it before in incredibly broad ways. And when the opinion comes down, the opinion says, well, it doesn't apply on private property. So you're allowed to share food with friends at your own homes. And we said, but we, <laughs> or we're going Court's to say. going to have to explain that. But we have pointed out that the city actually, like, demonstrably has applied it this other way. You don't just get to, <laughs> you know, pretend no that that sense. didn't happen. Uh, you know, I love the work that I do, Brian. Um, you know, I, I love being able to bring these important issues in front of the courts, but it can be very frustrating. Oh, sometimes. yes. I'm frustrated just hearing that. Yeah. And, and, and <laughs> I we, can't believe it. You know, the, the ideal of our American justice system is, um, lady justice who's blindfolded and holding the scales. Right. And it's supposed to impartially weigh the arguments that both sides bring to bear. But unfortunately, one of the things that we see time and time again is if the government is 
is on the other side of the case, particularly if it's a constitutional case, there's a very heavy thumb in favor of the government. Lady Justice is not so blind as we'd like her to be when the government's on the other side. And we recognize that. But it's part of the reason why we fight. We're about to go into another commercial break. We're going to continue discussing this on the other side. Uh, if you've got questions about uh, the Freedom Center or the work that it's doing, call in. The number is 800-529-5572 or 573-874-9390. This is Dave Rowland of the Freedom Center of Missouri filling in for Gary Nolan on the Zimmer Radio Network. We are back. This is Dave Rowland filling in for Gary Nolan today. I've talked a little bit about the work that the Freedom Center is doing and the cases I want to talk about now tie into um, much of what we've already talked about on the show today and that in particular has to do with what I think is the negative influence of partisanship and factions in our electoral process. So the Freedom Center believes very strongly that people need to be able to uh, choose the people that they believe would best serve them in government, regardless of what party those people are. Um, We also believe that um, People should not use the law as a cudgel against their political uh, political opponents. But unfortunately, that happens all the time. Um, and when that happens, we try and get involved. So uh, we've got a, a case that people have been listening um, who have been listening will be familiar with. Katie Gatewood was a city council member in O'Fallon. And uh, she got into a political dispute with some of her fellow council members, and they decided they wanted to get rid of her. And so they uh, decided to pursue an impeachment action against her. The impeachment action was illegal at the outset because it was basically punishing her for asking questions about uh, an, uh, a public official, the chief of police. Uh, that alone would have been a violation of the First Amendment. But then they compounded that violation by allowing people who had very publicly said that she was guilty of the charges that were being brought in this impeachment action and allowed them to be the jury that sat in charge of deciding whether or not she had in fact violated the law. Well, they already said that they thought she violated the law. That's called prejudging a case, and that's a due process violation. Um, we are in the midst of briefing this case for the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, the district court did not address the substance of our constitutional claims. What they, what the district court said is, this is a matter for state courts. We're not going to get involved. Um, and we pointed to a, a very important case uh, from the Eighth Circuit a few years back that said just the opposite. They said, look, when the issue is that the state level proceeding uh, involves what they call an incompetent tribunal. In other words, uh, a, a tribunal that is not going to render a fair decision because someone's either prejudged the matter or that they're biased in some way, then you have to be able to go to federal court. And so we're asking the Eighth Circuit to um, fix this situation and allow the federal courts to move on to address our constitutional claims. So that's one of those issues. Um, we also are involved in a case in Edgar Springs where they decided that because one of their citizens was raising a lot of uncomfortable questions about the city government, they were going to ban her from city hall. This was Rebecca Varney. And um, again, this represented the powers that be in a community 
trying to use the law as a weapon against someone they saw as a political adversary. That's not the way our system is supposed to work. It's a violation of the First Amendment to try and exclude a uh, a member of the public from access to public property or public records because you don't like what they're going to do if they're allowed to review those public records. That's another one of the important constitutional battles the Freedom Center is fighting right now. A third involves uh, a candidate for city government who beat his opponent uh, and then the opponent two years later after losing filed uh, a campaign fi- uh, campaign finance complaint with the MEC. And this is the kind of thing that happens all the time. Campaign finance laws were originally intended to make sure that the public knew um, who was supporting whom. In other words, where was the the money coming from to support a particular candidate or a particular campaign so that basically if there were concerns about um, improper influence over a particular candidate or campaign that the, the citizens could then understand the the amount of money involved and decide to vote accordingly. Um, but frequently what happens is you get these ticky-tack um, violation claims that are being filed or complaints that are being filed and it's not actually about informing the public it's about punishing political rivals and that's exactly what's happening in Niall Stevens versus the Missouri Ethics Commission and we're litigating that First Amendment case as well Um, but then the most important case that we've got currently and that we're um, really excited about has to do with how elections are conducted Um, I won a really important case back in 2019 Roland versus St. Louis City Board of Election Commissioners that said that um, election records are, in fact, public records and that the Sunshine Law allows citizens to have access to most election records. Now, there is a, um, a category of election records that are confidential, and those happen to deal with voted ballots. In other words, the the documents that would show exactly how a voter um, cast their their votes in a particular election. Um, But a lot of people are concerned about how the electoral process is working. You've had people on both sides of the the political divide claiming that elections were stolen, that the elections were not being conducted properly. Well, how do you tell if an election has been stolen or if it's been conducted properly. You have to be able to look at the records themselves as long as you're not looking at the ballots themselves. And uh, so we have a client down in Springfield who asked for what are called cast vote records. These are electronic data that provide a lot of information about how electronic devices were used in conducting an election and counting votes. Um, And the Green County clerk filed a Sunshine Law suit saying, we don't know if we're allowed to provide this information or not. We need the courts to tell us. So I'm coming in to represent Lori Huddleston um, to make sure that the courts say, you know what, as long as it's not revealing how a citizen voted on their ballot, this is information that has to be open to the public. I believe strongly that allowing the public to observe this information to understand better how elections are conducted is going to help fix some of the concerns we have in our society with elections. I'm proud of the work we're doing. I hope you are too. This has been Dave Rowland filling in for Gary Nolan on the Zimmer Radio Network. You guys have a great day.